Good morning, friends. It's good to see each of you here today. Today is the last sermon in a series of sermons of meditations that we have entitled Encounters with Jesus. These have been various passages from the Gospels. I pray it's been an encouragement to you as it has been to me, even in studying these texts and preparing these messages. Just a public service announcement. We will be jumping back into the middle of a series that we were doing in Proverbs 1 to 9, way back in March. We'll be jumping back into that next week with a message from Proverbs chapter 6. So if you're like me, you might be going back and listening to Proverbs 1 through 5 from February and March of this year. Avail yourselves of that on the website and the Sermon Audio podcast. I leave that to you. We have come here this morning, as we always acknowledge, not in a position of strength and self-sufficiency. We come here weak, and the good news about that to us is that God has promised that his grace is sufficient for us and that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And that is our hope and our confidence. So let's go to the Lord now and pray and ask him for his help as we look to his word. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in complete confidence that you will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. You are good, you're gracious, you're faithful, you're true. You always do what's right. You are the father of lights. You are the giver of all good gifts. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. We come to you and we ask you simply to be with us now as we look to your word. And we pray for your grace. We pray that your strength would be made obvious in our weakness. We pray that as we look at Christ and behold him as our good shepherd, that we would be strengthened and confirmed in our faith, that our hearts would be knitted together as the sheep, as the people of God. And we pray that our hearts and our affections would be stirred for your son. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for Christ and we pray for these things in his name. Amen. Friends, I don't want to bury the lead this morning. We are going to be looking at John chapter 10, verses 1 to 30. We've entitled this sermon, Our Good Shepherd. That was not really a reach. That's the heading that's in most of your Bibles, I'm sure. The Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ himself. I think a very important question for us to ask ourselves all the time, and certainly this morning, is how can I know that I'm safe? How can I know that I am safe eternally? How can I know that things will go well for me? Not just maybe today or tomorrow, though we don't even know that. How can we know that things will go well for us eternally? How can we know that we have peace with God? It's an important question. Our lives are so unpredictable. Our lives are so unsteady and unstable. How could we, as fallen creatures in a fallen world, who feel one thing right now and feel a different thing in five minutes, how could we ever have rock-solid confidence that we'll be with God forever and that we will be counted amongst the righteous at the end of history? The answer has nothing to do with you. It couldn't. The answer has everything to do with who has saved you. Jesus is the good shepherd. His people are his sheep. That's us. Those who have heard his voice and follow him. Those who have trusted in him. And there is a personal 
intimate and particular relationship that Jesus has with his sheep that he doesn't have with everyone. In John chapter 10, we're going to be looking at some of the things that Jesus says about that, about his relationship to us. He says some things that are surprising, frankly. And he says some things that are incredibly sweet and comforting. So if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Open them up to John 10 and verse 1. You might already be there. I've mentioned the text once or twice. You can obviously be looking at a hard copy of the scripture. If you don't already have a Bible app downloaded on your phone, now might be a good time to do that because you could use that even now to follow along with us. Just a brief word of context before we look to the text itself. In John chapter 9, many may be familiar with the the account, the story. There's a man who was born blind who is healed by Jesus. His sight is given to him. It's not restored because he never had it. It's given to him. And then because of some of the things that he says to the religious authorities when he's questioned about his healing, he has been thrown out of the synagogue. He's been harshly treated by the religious authorities in Israel. Then in chapter 10, John is going to write the words of Jesus. Right after that, this man who was blind who now sees has been thrown out of the synagogue, harshly treated, and Jesus is going to talk about how thieves and robbers destroy God's people. But how the good shepherd, on the other hand, leads God's people out of their sheep pen and into his flock to pasture. And how the good shepherd knows his own and how he came to give them life and abundant eternal life and how he came to lay his life down so that they might have it. Keep these words of the prophet Ezekiel in mind as we make our way through John 10 today. Ezekiel 34 verses 11 and following. You can maybe jot this down. Don't turn there. Just listen. You can read it later today. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Praise be to his name. Keep that in mind. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. This too is the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. 
this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Amen. We could about close in prayer and call it a service. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's consider the text together for just a little bit, friends. We're going to walk our way through this passage, and then I'm going to reflect on it with you. There are two reflections. The first one's very short. The second one's much longer. They're related. But now let's look to the text and just understand what's going on, what John is recording for us, and what we are to make of these things. Throughout this passage, Jesus uses a figure of speech, a metaphor, a metaphor of a shepherd and his sheep to describe his relationship to his people. In verse 1, we see that thieves and robbers don't enter into the sheepfold. Think about a pen in which sheep would be contained. They don't enter by the door. They have to climb in another way. That's because they're illegitimate. Verse 2, the shepherd of the sheep, however, enters through the door. Beginning of verse 3, this is because the gatekeeper knows the shepherd. Then beginning in the second half of Verse three, Jesus is going to describe the shepherd's relationship to his sheep and their relationship to him. He says that the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. He calls the sheep who are his own by name. He knows them personally. He leads them out of the sheepfold to pasture. He's leading them to a place of rest. He's leading them to a place of of 
green pasture to feed on. He's sustaining them. He goes before his sheep and his sheep follow him. This is because they know his voice. They trust him. He says that the shepherd's sheep in verse five will not follow anyone else. They won't follow a stranger. They will flee from a stranger, he says, because they do not know the voice of strangers. They hear it and they say, no, that is not my shepherd. I'm not following him. I'm not following her. I'm following that one voice. In verse six, we see that Jesus's audience doesn't understand what he was saying to them. So in verses seven to nine, Jesus briefly uses another metaphor to illustrate his relationship to his people and what he does for them. He's going to use the illustration of, of being a door of the sheep pen for the sheep to go into pasture through. Verse seven, he says, I am the door of the sheep. In verse nine, he makes clear what he means, that he is the way through which his sheep will be saved and will go out and find pasture. In other words, he is the way of his people's salvation. Verse eight, he says that everyone who has come before him were thieves and robbers. And it's very clear that he's referring to the long line of corrupt leaders. Think about the corrupt kings of Israel and Judah. Think about the corrupt priests that had come before. In verse 10, he states that thieves only come to kill and destroy the sheep. They come to do harm. But Jesus is different. Rather than to harm or to take life, he comes to give life and to give it abundantly. Verse 11, he again describes himself as the shepherd of his people, the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sake of the sheep. It becomes more clear now that he comes to give life to the sheep by laying down his own. Verses 12 and 13, he talks about a hired hand. Of, he is the shepherd. He is not a hired hand, but he talks about many hired hands. Again, corrupt leaders, corrupt priests that have existed in the history of God's people. Those people are motivated by self-interest, not love for the sheep. And so they abandon them to the wolves. But Jesus is different. Verses 14 and 15 are remarkable. Jesus states again that he's the good shepherd. He states again that I know my own and my own know me. There is this mutual knowing of each other. And what is that knowing like? He says, just as the father knows me and I know the father. Pretty astonishing. Jesus says that his knowing his sheep and his sheep knowing him is like the kind of knowing that exists between God the Father and God the Son. This is intimate. There's something beautiful and something perfect even about this relationship. And then he says again at the end of verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. He knows us. He loves us. He laid his life down for us. Verse 16, Jesus says that he has other sheep that are not of this fold. That is not Jews, but Gentiles. I must bring them also, he says. And they will listen 
to my voice. Just note the certainty with which Jesus speaks. It's, it's pretty epic. I must bring these people. They'll come because they'll hear my voice. They'll listen. And so there will be one flock with one shepherd, one people of Christ with Christ as their head has always been God's plan. Verses 17 and 18, the son's willing sacrifice of himself for the sheep evokes the love of God, the father. It pleases him. When the father looks upon the son and his willing sacrifice of himself and the fact that the son has authority to take his life back up again, the father looks upon that and smiles. This is my son with whom I am well pleased, right? This sacrificial work of the son evokes the love of God the father because the father and the son had planned this work, had planned this sacrifice before the world began. When Jesus states that he has authority to lay his life down and authority to take it up again and states that no one takes his life from him. We realize that only God can talk like that. Like, I can't say that. No human being has ever been able to say that, that nobody takes my life and I have authority, power to lay it down and to take it up again. Only God speaks that way. In verses 19 to 21, we have this interjection here. We see ongoing certainty around Jesus, around his mission and around his healing even of the man born blind from John chapter 9. We see that there are some who thinks that he has a demon and that he's insane. This is not the first time that a Jewish crowd has said something like that. In chapter 7 and verse 20, chapter 8 and verse 48 of John's gospel, they say the same thing. This man has a demon. Then in verses 22 to 30, the, the scene shifts. It's now the Feast of Dedication. Just a brief word on that. I know some will be interested. What is that? The Feast of Dedication. It was not authorized by the Hebrew Scriptures. In Jesus' day, it would have been a relatively recent institution. In 167 BC, a Syrian named Antiochus Epiphanes overran Jerusalem. He polluted the temple and began an oppressive rule over the Jewish people. Three years later, in 164 BC, there was a successful revolt on the part of the Jewish people known as the Maccabean Revolt. Some may be familiar. They overthrew their oppressor. They took back the temple and with an eight day celebration, they rededicated the temple in Jerusalem. And then this feast of dedication, as it was known then, it was determined should be held every year. This feast of dedication we now call Hanukkah. So just for context, that's what this is. In verse 23, let's get back to the matter at hand. Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. The Jews gather around him in verse 24 and they ask him a question. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus responds beginning in verse 25. He says, I told you and you do not believe. Now Jesus had not in a crowd of Jews, Jesus had not said explicitly verbatim, I'm the Messiah. He had said that directly to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. He had said that essentially directly to the blind man in John 9. But he had not said that in a crowd of Jews. So what's he mean here? 
I told you and you don't believe. What he's saying is that he has said and done plenty of things that have made his identity clear. But yet the Jews have not believed in him. That becomes more obvious in the second half of verse 25. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. I've done works in the name of my father that make it very clear who I am. Then verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. Now that wording is surprising. It's not what we would expect it to be. We would expect Jesus to say something like, but you're not part of my flock because you don't believe. It's not what he says, though. There is a causal relationship, just not the one we would think, right? You don't believe because you're not mine, is what Jesus says, not the other way around. Now, the inverse of that is incredibly encouraging and comforting. Those who do believe do so because they are Christ's. That's how Jesus is talking in this entire chapter, in this entire section, in many places elsewhere. These particular people hear my voice because they're mine. They believe because they're mine. You don't believe because you're not, is what he says to his his audience. Verse 27 sounds like things that Jesus had said earlier in the chapter. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. My sheep will hear me. My sheep will listen to me. They will believe me. They will follow me and I know them personally. Verses 28 to 30 now, friends, are full of sweet and comforting words for all of those who trust in Christ. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's a refrigerator worthy verse. Eternal life comes to us through Christ as a gift. Jesus promises that we will never perish eternally. And he promises that no one can take us away from him. If possible, he ups the ante in verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. This is just like what Jesus had said in John 6, 37. All that the father gives me will come to me. So not only is God the son holding us and keeping us and giving us eternal life, God the Father is in this with him. He has us too. The Father, along with the Son, is keeping us safe. The Father, along with the Son, will not allow us to be taken away from him. Verse 30, Jesus states, I and the Father are one. Now, the audience is about to pick up stones to kill him because that's blasphemy because he's making himself one with God. But two things for our observation here. One, Jesus and the father are one in essence, right? They're one in nature. Jesus is, as we just confessed earlier from the Nicene Creed, Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the father. Amen. 
And I think it's legitimate to look at verse 30 and see that not only are the Father and the Son one in nature and substance, they're one in purpose. I and the Father are one in purpose, in what we aim to do and what we are doing, namely the salvation of our people. So friends, let's reflect a little bit together on this passage. And as I mentioned earlier, two reflections. The first is very brief. The second is a little longer, but they're related. They kind of meld together. So you do with that what you will. So reflection number one is regarding the sweetness of Jesus's relationship to us. The sweetness of Christ's relationship to us, his people. And I'm just basically quoting things that this text says verbatim. Jesus knows us personally. He knows us by name. Lisha, Janet, Steve, Bruce. He knows us that way. He calls us by name. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he says, stand, live. And Dead people obey the voice of Christ. We know his voice. We know his voice. When, when Christ speaks to us from here, from his word, we know it when we hear it. And we say, that's, that's my shepherd, that's my savior, that's my king, and we follow him. We don't, however, follow others because they're not Jesus. It's because we don't know their voice. Jesus came so that we might be saved. That's why he came. Why did God become man? Why did God, the son eternal, take on human flesh to live in the world as a man that he had created? To save us. That's why. To save us because he loves us and to save us for his own joy, his own pleasure, and his own renown. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And he laid down his life for us. Notice how he talks. Who does he say he died for? He says he dies for his people. I died for my sheep, he says. I lay my life down for my sheep. He lived particularly for us and he gave his life particularly for us. He knows us and we know him with a kind of intimacy, he says, that is like the way that he knows his father and his father knows him. Now, this is transitioning to reflection number two. The way that Jesus describes his sheep and his relationship to them is personal, it is intimate, and it is particular. I know my own, he says. So reflection number two, the personal, intimate, and particular relationship that Jesus has with us means that we are safe forever. Say that again. The personal, intimate, and particular relationship Jesus has with us means that we are safe forever. So if somebody were to ask anybody who's a member of CBC, how do you know you're going to make it to heaven? I pray that our answer is one word, and it is utterly sufficient. Jesus, that's how we know. Christ, 
the ground of our peace and the ground of our assurance is Christ. And as I said in the introduction, what could be more important in this life that is wrought with suffering and difficulty in the fight against sin for people who are fallen and weak and vacillate all the time? What could be more important than this? That Jesus, his person, who he is, and his work, what he did, is the ground of our peace and assurance, and we can know that we're safe. Think about the testimony of God's word. We were the fathers, and he gave us to his son. Jesus says that the reason people come to him is that the father gave them to him, and whoever comes to him, he says, I'll never turn away. I will never cast them out. He says, I know my sheep. He loves us. He calls us by name. We hear his voice. We know it. We follow him. We trust him. We believe in him, and we hope in him. And all of that is true because we're his. If we were not his, we wouldn't hear his voice. If we were not his, we wouldn't follow him. If we were not his, we wouldn't believe in him or hope in him or trust in him. The fact that he laid his life down personally for his sheep is a big deal. Christ did not come to make your salvation possible. He came to do it. There's a world of difference between those two things. If he came and built a wonderful, extravagant salvation machine and then says, now, get in and do your part, I'm leaving because we got no hope. I don't know about you. But if he came and saved us, that is entirely different. The language of scripture is that Jesus saved his people. He purchased us with his own blood, Acts 20, verse 28. This is real concrete transaction. This is no hypothetical thing. He did it. The debt is paid and it's never going to be asked for again. Jesus secured your salvation and mine definitely and particularly when he laid his life down. He atoned and satisfied for our sin. He took our guilt and our shame and in him we are really forgiven. He fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements for us. I don't know if you've thought about it this way. The, the weight, I might even say the burden of full and true obedience to God's holy law. That weight has been carried by Christ alone. And he carried it for you. He carried it for me. So it's right, we talk about this sometimes, it's right to say, somebody asks you, when were you saved? And I'm not encouraging you to be a smart aleck, I'm just talking real with you for a moment. When people ask you, when were you saved? They generally want you to talk to them about your conversion and that's all fine and good. On the one hand, if we're gonna answer that question biblically, we could say that we were saved even before the world began because God planned it and it was sure. But in terms of time and space, and when your salvation and mine was accomplished, it happened 2,000 years ago. It happened on a cross outside of Jerusalem, and it happened at a tomb on a Sunday morning when he got up. And it's done. 
Jesus has given us eternal life and he won't take it back. It's not something, a gift that he's going to revoke. He has us and we are in his hands and he will never let us go. And he will not let anybody take us away from him, he says. So at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, we are safe, not because we will never fail. We will fail plenty. But we are safe because Jesus will never fail us. And the Father is with him in this. So a takeaway from this message, like every Sunday, is look to Christ and look to him only and trust in him completely. Because Jesus knows, loves, saves, and keeps his own. So let this knowledge, this, this stuff that we're considering this morning about Christ and his relationship to you, let this fuel you. Let this propel you when life is really hard. If your life is not hard today, it will be soon. That's not to be Debbie Downer. That's just to be honest because this world is broken and so are you. Let this knowledge of Christ and your safety in him fuel you when your flesh is relentlessly after you, when that internal war is raging, when it feels like you're losing the battle more often than you certainly want to. Let this fuel you. When attacks seem to just keep coming and there's no relief, consider these things. Keep fighting. Keep trusting. Let the personal, never faltering love of Christ for you comfort you. Let it comfort you when the daily and weekly grind has worn you out. That's a thing. We, we talk about this sometimes too, how a lot of times we handle catastrophe and crisis better than we handle the daily grind. The daily grind just, its name implies this, it just kind of grinds us to powder sometimes. Let the personal, never faltering, never wavering love of Christ comfort you when you are worn down. Let it comfort you also, though, when your heart is breaking. Let his love comfort you when there seems to be nothing but darkness all around. I've mentioned how our feelings change a lot. So many in the, in the gathering here today may know that I like R&B music, but you do not need to listen to R&B to understand what it means when they say I'm feeling all kind of ways, because we all do. It's our experience. We feel good and bad. We feel up and down. We feel happy and sad, secure and terrified. We feel warm. We feel cold. We feel passion. We feel apathy, sometimes within a 10-minute span. The only consistent thing, friends, about our feelings is that they are inconsistent. But here's some good news. That we are safe eternally in Christ, despite how we are or, or not feeling at any given moment. Why? It's because Jesus is our surety, to use the old word. It's because he alone is the rock of our salvation. His is the name of which we boast. And all those who trust in him will never be put to shame. I'm landing the plane. This is a conclusion. I guess I had to preach a long message for two reasons. One, I haven't preached in two weeks. 
two, it's the last message in the series. You guys love me and I appreciate your grace. I listened to a song quite a bit this week and I'm gonna leave you with words from this particular song. It's entitled, Jesus Strong and Kind. It's something that we may be singing soon in, in the gathering here. It goes this way. Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to him. Jesus said, if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross that he will come to me. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. Strong and kind indeed. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come moved and thankful for your Son and for what he's done for us. For those sitting here who may not feel much this morning, we pray for your grace, especially for them, that they might be comforted, that they might be stirred. Father, we pray that you would simply overcome our sin our sluggishness of heart, our coldness and hardness of heart to stir us in love and gratitude. We pray for you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.